Many millennia ago, at the peak of Mount Hermon in the Golan Heights, a group of divine beings known as the Watchers, or Sons of God, descended in an act of rebellion against their king, Yahweh. By teaching them the secret knowledge of the cosmos, they sought to wrestle dominion of the earth away from humanity. They bore children with them, and their offspring were both human and divine. These giants are the demigods of old, and the events that transpired would forever alter the course of human history. At Camp Hermon, we discuss the oddities of the ancient world and their lingering impact on our world today. Welcome. Very important. Okay. If you could only choose one, would it be Indiana Jones or Fox Mulder? <laughs> oh man, that's like the worst <laughs> prospect ever. I'm gonna think how, <laughs> how how do I decide between those two people? My my nickname when I was in graduate school was Spooky Burton. <laughs> After Spooky Mulder. <laughs> Yeah, I, I had. I mean, my office. Everybody knew it. Everybody knew that I was into all the macabre stuff. That I was studying anthropology of religion. I even had the Mulder "I Want to Believe" poster on my wall. My I want to get that poster. Yeah, yeah. But if I had, I don't know. I don't know that I I could choose because I've described myself as like a combination between those guys. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, if you're gonna if you're gonna make me choose one, I would say equal parts equal parts of each, so half of each. <laughs> I I don't I don't th I think I've just proven that I can't choose. I I just took half of each and made one whole person. That's how I found the work around work around in your question. It's a hard choice at this point. I almost think I just started watching X Files. I'm I'm pretty I mean recently in there. I'd almost. Uh, I don't know. I'd almost have to say Team Spooky Mulder right now, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah, well, I was uh, I was in love with Julian Anderson back in the day. I mean, I had it. I, I mean, who too. wasn't right? Yeah. Oh my gosh! Hey, I kind of still am. I don't know. She was in a she was in a movie just a few or a TV show a few years ago, and mm. uh, yeah. Well, I'm not. Gonna, I don't want to get myself in trouble with my uh, soon to be fiance, so I won't say anything <laughs> more. But yeah, yeah. That will oh, save yeah. you many, many trips to the doghouse. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. She just yep. got abducted by aliens where I'm at in this series. But I need to stop according to the 12 steps to become a Jedi because you said you didn't watch TV. So. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, you got to you got to stop and focus on on your Jedi studies. Read the ancient was, werewolf text. <laughs> yeah, there was a good there was a good year for base, basically 1997 was completely TV list. Amazing. Yeah. I find that I uh, don't watch nearly enough television. That may be a good thing. I I'm, I still go back to my classics. Like I, I almost yearly, I'll do I'll do both Twin Peaks and X Files. Nice. I just have I have to. Yeah. No, you find you know you find the stuff you like, and uh, I watch. I've seen Psych. I don't know if you guys watch the show Psych, but I just cycle yeah, through that. Like, yeah. Uh, so you got to find the good stuff and just keep. Going to it, uh, Doctor Judd. We definitely um, we've got to get a uh, Jedi shirt going with uh, with the some of the merch for uh, yeah, absolutely for sure. Um, absolutely, that'd be a hot item. Oh, for sure. Yeah, 
I've got that one and uh, uh, Keep Calm and Hunt Nephilim, I think is the other one. It's, it's some <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. That's amazing. <laughs> Okay, guys, so this is the apps, the first episode of Camp. Um, my name is Chris. This is Tori. Hey, Tori, how you doing? I'm great. How are you? Doing good. <laughs> I'm excited for this. Super okay. excited. My whole life, um, I would have, I guess, what you could consider some big dreams. And yeah, I mean, dreams that have felt spiritual in nature, I would say, and pretty dark and, and various like dark, scary things trying to get me and where like in my dream, I've ended up like calling out Jesus name and, and it'll go away and I'll wake up, you know? And, yeah. and I always did kind of write that off as like, Oh, it was just a dream, you know, or like maybe this is like preparing me for something later. But um, yeah, I mean, listening kind of has me thinking like, what if it was more than that? But anyway, I'm not really sure what to make yeah. of that. No, but that's it. Because yeah. the dream world, you know, we, we don't really know what, like what that is. Like, does our consciousness go, is it another dimension? Some people think like, oh, it's just in your head. But when you like the experiences you've had, and I had similar experiences when I was a kid where I would feel like, like I'm being attacked, um, mm-hmm. but it's been a dream, of course, but it felt, it feels very, felt very real. Um, it's very real. Yeah. Right. It's like you, you wake up and it feels like a memory. And, and I know I've read a lot about this and people say that dreams are like your your brain's recycling system or your filing system, you know? And so it's like everything you see in a dream you've seen in real life. And I'm like, no, absolutely not. Right. <laughs> I'm really, you know, like never seen this step. I have no idea why that would have been anywhere in my imagination, yeah. but yeah, but I mean, scary stuff. And it's, it's like, I've called out to Jesus and it's gone away and yeah. you know, so anyway, so just dreams, but what about you? Have you had That's any cool. great experiences? I have actually, I have. Get down so, to it. So in about eight minutes or so, we've got David Ozzy coming on yes, to talk about. Ozzie. So he's going to talk about Bigfoot. He's going to talk about some of his experiences. I'll I'll just give I'll just give a, t- a couple of teasers on some of the stuff that I've experienced, and then we can talk about it more in depth in um, in a later episode. I was in ministry for a short period of time when I was younger. And I was out in California taking classes at Fuller Theological Seminary, which is where Dr. Laura Sanger is out of. And so I was taking classes with Peter Wagner, C. Peter Wagner, and uh, Charles Kraft. And Charles Kraft, from what I remember, because this was a long time ago, this was like almost 20 years ago. Charles Kraft is like a Christian anthropologist, and he was older then, so I'm not even sure if if he's passed away at this point or if he's still with us. But what the class he taught on was was mainly about like deliverance. And so I had an encounter one evening with at the time I thought it was a demon in my room. But now after listening to an episode with uh, L.A. Marzulli, with a woman that gives a testimony of an encounter she had, what I saw sounded almost exactly like what she saw. And he he thought it was a fallen angel. So. I'll kind of I'll, I'll go I'll go more into it in a in another episode. Um, but yeah, yeah, I've had some right. interesting experiences. I've seen miraculous healings, like limbs grow. I've seen demonic manifestations from from individuals. Um, mm-hmm. So 
yeah, this stuff is very real to me because I've experienced it, you know, Absolutely. with my own eyes. Uh, so yeah, it's hard to deny, you, you know, academically you could deny things when it's just like, you know, you're just talking about stuff on paper, but like when you hear stuff and you see stuff, then you kind of come face to face with it and you're like, Oh, okay. Like what box do I put this experience in? Like if, if it's something that you didn't previously believe, right. I kind of always, I grew up kind of always believing in like all kinds of stuff. Cause I grew up like in the eighties and nineties. And so grew up watching like monster movies and stuff. So I'm like, I always thought like vampires were cool. Werewolves were cool. So anything I ever saw that kind of hinted at this stuff possibly being real, I'd be like, okay, cool. Well, I guess maybe there's a chance that it's real. And then here comes Dr. Judd, you know, talking Dr. Judd Burton talking about, you know, vampires and werewolves and, and all these things and having, you know, evidence for them being real. Right. And like church fathers and, you know, guys writing hymns we've been singing for hundreds of years, how like, you know, they had testimonies, like these things are real. And I just don't think that people know about that. You know, like I grew up in church my whole life. I was in Christian school. I mean, I think my story is pretty similar to, to a lot of the fans, you know, it's like, it's crazy. How many times have I, have I studied the Bible and studied, you know, in depth certain books. And it's like, why have we never talked about this stuff? You know, like acknowledging that other Christians have seen this stuff and, you know, even just the whole Genesis six narrative. It's like, well, it's right, right. there. So, right. Yo, you mentioned hymns. There's hymns that talk about. Yeah. So um, in one of Judd's episodes I was listening to, and I'm going to butcher the name. So we'll have to ask him when we have him on here. But uh, some guy who wrote, um, oh, the guy who wrote Onward Christian Soldiers. Okay. Also wrote about werewolves. So Really? Yeah. Wow. That's wild. Yeah. I, I must have missed that when I was listening to that episode. Yeah. We'll have to ask him about that. But I know yeah. that was mind blowing for me. Well, you know, huh. and um, even though I haven't like, I don't know, seen this stuff firsthand, like there are too many people in my life and who have seen things. And it's like, they're not, I know that they can't all be lying, making stuff up or like, you know, it's like, they're not delusional and they also have no reason to lie to me about it. So it's like, that always got the wheels turning for me. I think there's a quote in the intro about that, you know, like if at least one person's right, it busts the narrative, you know, I'm like, yeah, Dr. Yeah. I'm like, I know all these people, I mean, strangers and like, you know, thousands of accounts of this stuff, but also like people in my life who have nothing to gain from like, lying to me about it you know so I'm like right. I think there's something to this and no one can seem to explain it so it's kind of like when people talk about the the resurrection of Jesus being like something that's fake and when you think about like the early disciples like they all died almost all of them right like um, horrifically horrific deaths like but you wouldn't you wouldn't die for something that you know didn't happen is a lie yeah it was a hoax you know what i mean like if you're just making it up or if it's a hoax um right. so that that's a lot to me that's like a lot of evidence there you're like yeah i don't think and people i'm sure people who come out and talk about these things some of them are probably just crazy but like dr heiser was saying to his point if you have a thousand stories about bigfoot but at least one or ufos or whatever but if at least one of them is true if yeah. it was a narrative like, okay, like at least if one is true, then it's real. Right. Yeah. yeah. If one, if one is true, then it's like, okay, so then they do exist. So, yeah. so everything we've been taught is 
you know, it's so, being uh, fake. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Or even how about even just what we're taught about history in general? Yeah, like the history of the earth, the history of the world, like yeah, biblical that. history. Yes, yeah, all of it. It's so much more like Chronicles of Narnia or like Lord of the Rings than right. you know than not. I think. Which is pretty cool. I feel like it makes the world so much more exciting, you know, and it makes yeah. the Bible that much more exciting. And it's like, you know, God is even that much cooler. Cause it's like, wow, yeah. this is such a, like, the story is so much better than I thought it was. Yeah, it's wild for sure. Okay, so uh, David Ozzy is in the waiting room. All right, so we're going to invite uh, David into the room here. Mr. Ozzy. Yeah. All right. Dude, how's it going? Hey, Ozzy. Hey, Tori, how you doing? Great, how are you? Pretty good. It's been a while. I know, I know. Are you going to come to the camp out? I don't think I'll be able to make it. It's right around the same time as my sister's wedding, actually. So I'll be uh, out in Kentucky, close by, but... <laughs> nice. Well, still country. Yeah, yeah, for sure. We see where you're... Uh, I don't... I was going to say, try to say something funny, but never mind. <laughs> My brain just went blank. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> hey, David, go ahead. Just introduce, introduce yourself. Tell us just a couple of things about like where you're from, what you do. <laughs> gotcha. Well, name's David Ozzy. Mostly go by Ozzy. I'm from born and raised in Virginia. I uh, lived here 34 years old, lived here the majority of that. And uh, currently working at Norfolk Naval Shipyard, working for our Navy uh, as an inspector on nuclear submarine and surface craft. And uh, nice. what supports my family. So That sounds super cool. It is pretty cool. Uh, it's given me a lot of opportunities and I've learned a lot from working in that field and also. Cool, man. Tori, you got any questions for David? Well, I know that you mentioned a question you wanted to ask him, so I don't want to steal your thunder, but um, <laughs> you can sit back and, and let you ask. And cool. Okay. I'll ask um, well, so, David, you wanted to talk about Bigfoot, is that right? Yeah. Okay. Cool. Well, um, I'm I'm gonna have some questions for you, but right now, man, I'd love to just kind of give you the floor and let you let you run with that topic. Okay. Cool. I have been into Bigfoot for a while and have a lot of thoughts on him, so I thought it'd be fitting. I don't really have another space to talk about Bigfoot without people sort of just, you know, edging their way out of their rooms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thinking, looking at you like you have three heads. Exactly. Relatable. Yeah. So, all right. Uh, yeah, I guess I'll just start it off. I yeah. have basically three working theories as to who or what is Bigfoot. And I guess I'll just kind of like touch on each and sort of expand on why I think what I think. And then, of course, if you guys have any questions along the way, just stop me because I'll get rambling sometimes. <laughs> uh, so my first thought as to who or what is Bigfoot might be, honestly, even though it's simple, it might be one of the most controversial given the thoughts that people have. Um, and that is that Sasquatch, as I call him, is an ape. Plain and simple. The, a lot of the reasons that I think that is because not only are there sightings of Bigfoot pretty much on every continent, 
Um, you know, you have in the Himalayas, they call them the Yeti. Over in China, they even have it. It's called the, they call it the urine over there, I believe, is, if I'm pronouncing that right. And even down under in Australia, they call it the Yowie. So there's plenty of like legends, sightings, even biological specimens that are across the world, you know. And also, if you look into primates, a lot of primates are sort of concentrated in small groups. I think the last time I checked on like the greater apes, the population in the world is somewhere like 500,000 to 600,000, which is pretty small number when you consider how big the world is and how many people there are in the world. Gorillas, chimpanzees, orangutans, and like are not easily seen. They're not easily discovered. They can avoid humans as much as possible. So that's not anything that's outside the realm of like when you're talking about a Sasquatch. People are always asking like, how come nobody's seen it? How come you can't ever get a good picture of it? How come? And one of the ones that always just blows my mind is how come we haven't found bones, found bones of it? I've been in the woods plenty of times. I've talked to plenty of hunters who would say the same thing of you don't really find bones of any creature in the woods just laying around. You know what I mean? The given like just weather um, is going to wear it down. Other animals eating on it. So there's a lot of weird things that people will say to basically discount the existence of Bigfoot. You got people like Jane Goodall, Jeff Meldrum, who've done fantastic work in not only like just in biology, but also in the study of Bigfoot himself that say this creature most definitely exists. Um, I actually wanted to read a quote from Jeff Meldrum, who was asked uh, on the belief of Bigfoot, one of the quotes he said is, it's not a matter of belief or wishful thinking. It's a matter of the preponderance of the evidence, be it eyewitness accounts, footprints, or hair that defies identification or attribute to a known species. When being asked if he believes if Bigfoot exists, another comment was no. He went on to clarify, when you ask if I believe, you use that word in the colloquial sense that I have accepted something amidst the lack of evidence. I say no, I am convinced by the evidence as much as I can be without a specimen right in front of me. So, you know, talking about if I believe Bigfoot exists, I kind of feel, not to put myself on the level of Meldrum, Meldrum by any means, but I feel kind of the same way uh, that the evidence is sort of you know, it's a lot. There's a lot of evidence out there, enough evidence that would support not only that, but like there's more evidence accumulated than the evidence that they had for gorillas before the gorillas were documented that they exist. So when you say there's a, a ton of evidence, aside from like eyewitness testimony, is there is there actual physical evidence? Meldrum's got a lot, right? Oh, yeah. So glad you asked that because I was actually going to read a little bit from uh, Melba Ketchum. She is a geneticist researcher for the, um, let's see, the, uh, the DNA diagnostics in Texas. And uh, she has been working in the field for about 30 years doing all kinds of like DNA sequencing, 
and genetic studies for like uh, law enforcement and things like that. And they had multiple specimens that were brought to them that was acquired from Bigfoot sighting. Um, they had, let's see, they had, I got it in my notes here. They had hair, blood, saliva, and urine that were all reportedly or supposed before they began testing that they had come from a Bigfoot or a Sasquatch sighting. And they ran multiple testing for like 30 plus years on this. And they reached results that were unequivocally a creature that is not documented. And they also had results that resulted in that there is human DNA in the Bigfoot samplings. And a lot of the pushback against that was basically that when you are testing DNA, it can very easily get corrupted by the person collecting the DNA. And her studies found that in none of the circumstances of like the DNA showing that it was a human in the DNA with the, um, sorry, with Sasquatch's DNA, it was not from like actual corruption of the specimens. Gotcha. So one one question that that raises in my mind is, you know, and I don't know the the amount, but I've heard it talked about that like humans share a good deal of our DNA with different primates. Is that one of those situations where that human DNA that they found within that DNA is that we're somehow related? Or is it a situation where you think that possibly these creatures were created at some point using human DNA, possibly by the apostate sons of God, the Watchers? Uh, it's definitely a possibility. It's definitely part of one of my other theories, which I'm going to get to. And yeah, so uh, she was a little more specific in the sense that she claimed that this proved that the existence of a hybrid between humans and an unknown species of primate. And that's basically what she used the evidence to support that Bigfoot is. Not that it's, hey, here, this is a, this is an ape, but that this is a unknown hominid that exists who is a mixture of a human and unknown primate. So then that even raises the question of like, well, what primate is unknown? So, you know, it's interesting because a lot of stories that I've heard on like Sasquatch Chronicles are made that like, someone has, has been within like, you know, shooting distance of a Bigfoot and it's like turn and looked at them and they couldn't shoot because it's like its face looked too human. Right. Yeah. You know, so it gave them pause, like, you know, am I about to like shoot a person? And so they don't and then it like goes away, you know? Yo. Yeah, that's something that's uh that's definitely like, you know, you often have that question asked of people if they're if they were a hunter and they witnessed it. Like, why didn't you shoot? And there's always that, like, they just knew for some reason that they couldn't. And it's like, 
okay that seems like a strange answer yeah like it it kind of had the the appearance and demeanor too much of like a, a bipedal hominid that it would feel like you're shooting a person is that kind of the the idea yeah that's what i've okay. heard yeah yep. makes sense okay so that's that's one of you said you had three working theories so that's one is that it's that it's some sort of uh kind of that'd be the what you think of as like a the natural purely natural explanation yeah i think it's uh i'm i'm a very like logical and practical person and honestly i mean it's it's one of the most like this this creature obviously exists what other creature do we have to compare it to and mm -hmm. i mean it's primates so that's why that's the conclusion that i come to but it doesn't it isn't to say that that's the only type of bigfoot i do think there are multiple types of bigfoot and i think one of the most like logical and um sort of tangible explanations is that it's an ape gotcha okay all right so that's your first working theory what's what's your next one my second, second working theory let me actually step away real quick my grab my power cord because my computer's a lot lower battery than i thought and then i'll tell okay. the all right second yeah one. no problem no problem okay well he's gone tori what are your thoughts on bigfoot um yeah i'm still trying to formulate i mean honestly it's still being like newer to this space and um Honestly, I just like hadn't given it a lot of thought before. So I'm very glad I've been like introduced to this whole space. But but anyway, I'm kind of playing catch up on the Bigfoot theories. I have heard a lot of stories about them looking very human-like and just learning what I've learned so far about like the Nephilim and chimeras and the whole history. I don't think it's impossible to think that there could have been at some point like a Nephilim hybrid who stuff i don't want to know about with like some primate you know and then like here we have bigfoot i don't think yeah. that that's impossible just because like yes the primate theory makes a lot of sense to me but then also like people say that you know seems to be able to be invisible or like on missing for when one hunted you know the lady talks about seeing something and I've, i know other people who have seen stuff like this where it looks like a big thing in the trees that looks like saran wrap you know so it's like okay so it's spiritual maybe or has some kind of like higher knowledge than we do and the only way that i could think to really rationalize that would be you know it's like well i believe that the nephilim existed and that nephilim hybrids existed and i believe that um what it was like all flesh was corrupted right so it's like humans and animals and you know god would tell the israelites to wipe out like men women children animals so anyway so i do think that like some animals were corrupted at some point and i don't think it's mm -hmm. impossible that that could have included a primate you know, yeah. So. Yeah. Sure. I I tend to I'm t I tend to lean towards kind of all of the theories being true somehow. That it's that it's there's natural explanation and a kind of otherworldly explanation. Yeah. And what you just mentioned kind of touches on on both of those natural and and kind of spiritual or supernatural or whatever. Well, yeah. I think like in the grand scheme of world history. We didn't know that gorillas existed until I just looked it up. It was 1847 when they found, I think, the first like gorilla skull. Yep. You know, so it's like that wasn't that long ago. That was 175 years ago. Um, right. So until then, like they probably would have thought that people talking about gorillas or people 
who said that they had seen gorillas. Like, oh, I saw this really hairy. It looked like a big, strong guy. He was really furry. People would have been like, that's crazy. You know, like, I no, you it, didn't. It, it was thought of as a myth for a really long time because stories would, you know, would come out. So, yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. I just think it's funny, like, all the things throughout human history, that's always the first response, right? It's like, why is that always our response? Like, you're crazy. You know, it's like the guy who invented soap, you know, it's like, you're crazy. <laughs> right. Yeah. Actually, to piggyback off of that, Tori, that's one of my working theories, too, is that Sasquatch is a hybrid. And whether that be a hybrid of a watcher and a primate, or whether it be a Nephilim and a primate, or possibly human and ape through some sort of technology, either from the watchers or even from the technology that we have now. Like um, a chimeric creature. Exactly, exactly. Um, I was gonna read an excerpt from the Book of Enoch actually that talks about that exact thing. It says, these are the leaders of the 200 angels and all the others with them. And they took wives for themselves and every one of them chose for himself one each. And they began to go into them and were promiscuous with them. They taught them charms and spells and showed them the cutting of roots and trees. And they became pregnant and bore large giants. And their height was 3,000 cubits. Those, these devoured all the toil of men until men were unable to sustain them. And the giants turned against them in order to devour men. They also began to sin against birds, animals, against reptiles and fish and they devoured one another's flesh and drank the blood from it. And they devoured one another's flesh and drank the blood from it. Blood from it. Blood from it. Blood from it. So... Yeah, I mean, there you go. A giant and a, yeah. and a primate, you know? Yeah. Um, and that's not to say also that Sasquatch didn't already exist. I mean, it's a possibility yeah. that them being close enough to humans, obviously they seem to be the most close to humans if they, you know, if they exist as an actual natural primate, they seem to be, they're bipedal. They seem to um, be the closest as far as humans go. So there very well could have been either, whether it was through actual like sexual interaction between Watcher or Nephilim and one of these creatures, uh, that could very easily explain them then becoming a hybrid that has some sort of like telepathic abilities or is able to phase in and out of our realm into the unseen realm. Who knows? Like that could very well be it. And it also could be how they came to be offspring of the uh, original Sasquatches that had a higher intelligence and is able to basically some people say that oh now they're being used as uh like henchmen by the gray aliens and such i mean i don't think that they would necessarily just use an ape for that you know what i mean they would want something that they could communicate to and with and it would understand the objectives of what they want this type of theory makes more sense to me in the sense of you know that's why i'm not just stuck on the th theory of Bigfoot only being a primate because yeah. then you do get the instances where you see like the orbs and you know mind speak and Bigfoot just vanishing from sight 
I guess I think I've even heard accounts where people say that they saw a UFO and the the Bigfoot was like walking into or being taken up into the UFO. I couldn't tell you where I heard that. Listen to too many podcasts, but I've definitely I so heard badly that. want to have one of these experiences. Like <laughs> I want to have a story like that. You, you want to have I you want to have it until it happens, and then you probably yeah. would wish you didn't. Exactly. Yeah. So are we, are you saying that like possibly a situation could be that, you know, the, the early Sasquatch, maybe Gigantopithecus and the Watchers or the Nephilim get a hold of one and either through, you know, some form of bestiality involving witchcraft or kind of some sort of laboratory involving witchcraft type situation definitely um, births the what we you might think of as like modern day bigfoot where and that i mean that kind of to me it makes the most sense because of the the abilities that that some of them seem to have as far as kind of disappearing are they you know do they have the is it an innate ability they have because they have their an, almost like a Nephilim hybrid themselves. Because to me, if the Watchers copulated with like Gigantopithecus, their offspring would be a hybrid, right? So they right. would have some of those, you know, divine or godlike attributes that the, the Nephilim that we read about in Genesis 6 and uh, the first book of Enoch have. So those powers, could those powers not be you know, how they're able to, the mind speak and the, you know, maybe moving from, you know, this dimension into another dimension, how they're able to disappear, or even kind of the the predator-like cloaking that some of them seem to have. There's been, that I've heard uh, eyewitness accounts of, um, where they kind of see the kind of a haze, or what did you say, Tori, a uh, saran wrap kind of, kind of <laughs> look to it. Like it's almost yeah. transparent. Yeah. You know, I wonder, okay, so, because Ozzy, you said, you know, people see like a UFO and Bigfoot, but it's like, there's also, there does seem to be this connection between like witchcraft or like Native American magic kind of, you know, and like, and Bigfoot or Yeti, you know, and I know he was like on the totem pole and is a symbol for truth or something, but like also with his human-like features it makes me wonder like is it possible that someone somewhere along the lines like put a curse on a human that like you know what i mean does that sound crazy that sounds crazy no it doesn't it definitely doesn't sound crazy like you're gonna be super hairy you can't speak people aren't gonna understand you and like you're immortal and (laughs) you know what i mean but it's like it's like native american folklore or legends and you know and like portals and then like they're also connected with witches and it's like all this stuff intersects at some point you know but so i think you're possibly clairvoyant tori because that's my third theory (laughs) uh is that sasquatch is or once was human and i don't know how widely accepted the book is uh but i base this theory off of the book of Jasher and also from the account in Genesis. Um, Cain? Yes, with Cain. 
Yeah. So Cain and Abel, I feel like most people who would listen to this podcast would be familiar, but quick recount, uh, Adam and Eve, they were in the Garden of Eden. They fell. God cast them out of the garden. They had two sons, one named Cain, one named Abel. And along came a time when they were both offering sacrifices to the Lord. Uh, Abel's was accepted and Cain's was not. So Cain, in his jealousy, kills his brother. So after Cain kills his brother, God asks him, where is your brother? And he's like, am I my brother's keeper? And God basically calls him out and says, look, your brother's blood is calling me, calling to me from the ground. I know that you have slain him. And so he puts a curse on Cain, not only to wander, but to be basically isolated. And so Cain says, this is too great of a curse for me. If anyone sees me, they will kill me because they know what I have done. And God says he'll place a mark on Cain so that if anyone who sees him, they will not slay him because they know that is the mark that God has placed on them. Well, if we hop over to the book of Jasher, because you're like, okay, well, what does that even mean? God placed a mark on Uh, In the book of Jasher, chapter two, I believe it is, uh, Lamech, who is like the great, great grandson of Cain, I believe you can, his name pops up in Genesis as well. And Lamech's son, Tubal Cain. Uh, I'll read the excerpt. It says, and Lamech was old and advanced in his years. His eyes were dim. He could not see. And Tubal Cain, his son, was leading him. As And it was day. It was during the day that Lamech went into the field with Tubal Cain and his son was with him. And while they were hunting, walking in the field, Cain, the son of Adam, advanced towards them. Lamech was very old and could not see much. And Tubal his, Cain, his son, was very young. And Tubal Cain told his father to draw his bow, and with the arrows he smote Cain, who was far off, and slew him, for he appeared to them to be an animal. And the arrows entered Cain's body, although he was distant from them, and when he fell to the ground, he died. And then it says, and it came to pass when Cain had died, that Lamech and Tubal Cain went to see the animal which they had slain, and they saw, and behold, it was their father, grandfather, Cain. Was he a was he like a hybrid? Was he like shape shifting? Was he like skin right. walking? Like there's so many ca- like boxes now to put him. Like, right. And, or, and yeah, even, or like Bigfoot because he was hairy, right? So was the yeah. idea that the mark that the Lord placed on him was that that he would look like Bigfoot? Like is that is that the mark? Is that kind of what you're? I I that's kind of my theory. Uh, is that this mark was recognizable um, in a way that people knew when they saw Cain that this was the mark that was placed on him. But he was a far enough distance off that even the younger man, Tuval Cain, thought that he was an animal. So he obviously was disfigured or hairy or something. Something that would make you confused as to is this a human or is this an animal it's pretty hard to confuse a human and an animal right it's like the only place that that really can like bigfoot's like the only example we have of that you know especially something bipedal right there's not really any other my mind goes potentially is that what if he was wearing a bunch of skins and he was wearing you know i'm just trying to think it's you know like some of the 
movies you've seen of like Vikings or somebody like, but if he's wearing, you know, full animal skins and he's got a, you know, partial head of an animal um, that he's wearing on him. Mm-hmm. Um, just Could one be. question. Just I will rebut that. Devil's advocate. Like... Could be. I Again, with the missing four on one stuff, it's like you're going to go out in the woods where there are armed guys who are hunting things and you're going to like dress like an animal. It's like you're asking to get shot, you know? Yeah. I do actually have another reason off of out of the book of Jasher that talks about that. And it's the reason why I sort of tie what happened with Cain into Bigfoot. And it's during the Tower of Babel, actually. So Jasher goes a lot more into detail about what happened during the Tower of Babel. And one of the things that happened during the Tower of Babel is that there were three different sects of people. Um, the, there was a group of people that said, we will ascend into heaven and we will, we will serve our gods in heaven. The other said, we will smite the heaven with arrows and we will kill Yahweh, God. Um, and then the third division said that we will send into heaven and we will fight against him so that we may rule with him. So some of them wanted to rule with him. One of, some of them wanted to kill him and some of them wanted to, um, basically just be in heaven and serve their gods there by getting there their own way. So in the book of Jasher chapter nine, it says, and the Lord smote the three divisions that were there. This is after he went and divided their language. He went down again to stop them completely from working. It says he punished them according to their works and their designs. And to those who said, we will ascend into heaven and serve our gods. He made them to become like apes and elephants. Interesting. Apes, wow. So sidebar on the elephants thing, could that possibly be where grays come from? Oh, because the skin, the way their skin is described is like that gray elephant-like skin. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. So if that was the case there with the grays, then, you know, maybe, you know, they could be also just be another kind of hybrid creature um, that the, the watchers kind of manipulated from there interesting sure. sure but that whole clarification of that the lord made some of them to become like apes uh really stands out to me in the sense that you know that's pretty how do you make a human become like an ape but not necessarily turn them into an ape um i know that's sort of nitpicking at the words but honestly, um, right. you know, if like I was to apes. think of a human like an ape, instantly, I mean, Sasquatch, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I sort of have used some of that into reverse engineering this a little bit and being like, you know, hey, here's these, this instance of people becoming like apes um, and then, you know, rewind back to Lamech and Tubal came when they saw their grandfather and we're like, hey, what's that animal over there? Let's shoot it. You know? Yeah. Wow. That's fascinating. Good stuff. Yeah. I hadn't ever, you know, I've heard that was, you said that was the book of Jasher. Yes. Um, and I don't know how widely it's accepted as like, you know, historical documented evidence, but it's widely used uh, like in the Jewish culture and things like that as like, you know, a sort of like mythical book. Right. 
I wonder if so. I grew up Catholic. I wonder if the Book of Jasher is in is it in the Apocrypha? I believe so, but I wouldn't put money on it. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Oh wait, here is the is Jasher in the Apocrypha? This is the only modern translation of the complete collection of the. Okay, so that yeah, I guess the Apocrypha includes uh, Enoch, Jasher, and Jubilees. Okay. Um, so interesting, cool. Yeah. But yeah, that's definitely a, the a part of the, the apocryphal literature. Cool. Well, David, we got three minutes with you, my man, before the infamous or famous Dr. Judd Burton jumps on. So real quick, I wanted to ask you in three minutes or less, if you had to or if you had if you were able to go back and witness any three events that happened in the Bible, what would they be? Wow. Maybe <laughs> do one. Good. You got two minutes. You got two minutes. We'll just do one. Two minutes. Maybe just one. Yeah. Oh man. And I'll have you we'll have you back on in the future and we'll we'll go over uh, yeah. a couple more. Honestly, if I could only choose one, um, and I have actually thought about this before, um, it would be to witness creation, honestly. Just how it talks about like God's interaction with creation. Like I've really come to reread it as a very intimate thing. Um, and I love like C.S. Lewis's account in uh, The Magician's Nephew of Aslan creating Narnia and singing and singing Narnia into existence. And I very much could see uh, God sort of doing a similar thing. But I just think it would be really neat to like watch from the beginning of there being nothing into what God has now created. Like, I think that would be a really amazing thing to see. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It would be wild. Yeah. When you said that, my mind instantly went like, which creation? like thinking about how the the one the the one where the earth was remade yeah i was like was it it that one was it yeah yeah. Uh, the one that counted in genesis that talks about you know the earth was formless and void and then he came and yeah is that the one you're talking about yes that's the one okay okay Uh, that's a whole other conversation yeah that is that is entirely another like two hour conversation because i have i have been digging into that as well in thinking about just how old the earth seems to be and how it seems to be, uh, you know, that there were civilizations inhabiting the earth long before humanity was created. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll get into that another time for sure. All right, guys, Dr. Judd is in the waiting room. I'm going to introduce him. Um, Ozzy, we will catch back up with you a little bit later on. Awesome. Good to see you, Ozzy. Good to see you. Are you hanging out, Ozzy? Yeah, I'll hang. Uh, if there's time at the end, I'll ask a question. And if not, I'll just be a fly on okay. the wall. Sounds good, yeah. brother. Appreciate you. DJB? DJB is here. Wonderful. Dad. Amazing. Okay, I just had to turn my, my camera on. Hey, does, does, uh, does a landscape shot work better for you guys? You know what? Yeah, whatever, whatever shot you want to do. We're going to just uh, upload and edit the audio, um, so we're not going to do video just yet. Okay. So we can, you look good. We see you. Yeah. Thanks, man. The man, the myth. The legend.
<laughs> he's he's all flesh, I promise you. <laughs> but just in case uh, any anybody out there doesn't know who you are, I just wanted to give you a, a, an introduction. So Dr. Judd Burton is the director and senior fellow of the Institute of Biblical Anthropology. You have your PhD in history, your MA in anthropology and history, and a BA in history. So that's a lot of history. Indeed. Wonderful. Um, you are from, you're born and raised in Merkle, Texas? Born in Abilene, raised in Merkle. Okay. I don't know. My Texas geography is not great, but are they, are it's, they, uh, it's, it's, yeah, they're like 10 miles away from each other. Oh, okay. Gotcha. So I don't, why did I think you were an archeologist? Maybe it's the, the Photoshop. I, I am. I am an archeologist. <laughs> I wear the hats, the proverbial hats of three different professions, history, okay. anthropology, archeology. span Gotcha. So what got you into archeology? span well, I blame the late Dr. George Knight. He was such a an influence on me early on, and it was it was a blessing that uh, his brother-in-law was the pastor of the church that I grew up in. And anytime he came to do a specialized Bible study, uh, I was there. It was a room full of adult men and me sitting there, hanging on every syllable that he said. Because of course he he would. Uh, he was teaching at the at the one of the local universities, and um, he would bring pictures and and stories about the archaeological excavations that he was working on. He would illustrate, you know, a lot of his points with archaeology. And so I would I would stay after these Bible studies and just pester him with questions, and he patiently, you know answered all of them and kind of took me under his wing. And I, I, when I was 10, I, I took his, um, he had a summer class for kids in archaeology. And that's about all it took for getting hooked on the, the human past, whether it was, you know, documents or artifacts or culture study, whatever. I was hooked at that point. And I had the good fortune to continue to study with him. I went to college at Hardin-Simmons University, where he taught me Greek and uh, uh, New Testament theology, and just a, a whole a whole swath of, of things. Wow. So that that, in a nutshell, in addition to you know my my dad's a history buff, my mom was a history buff, my grandmother was the librarian at the public library in town, so I. I I, I grew up around books and with a, a hefty appreciation for not only the human past, but also looking at that through a biblical lens and also valuing, you know, literature and sort of the craft of, of reading and writing. Nice. So where have you, where have you done, what do you guys you call them? Digs, right? Yeah. Excavations. excavations. I, I've done all kinds of, of technically archaeology is a subdiscipline of anthropology. Anthropology is just sort of the generalized study of culture, um, but you, at least in the states, you know, in most places, you you learn that in uh, anthropology classics departments, things like that. So um, I've done work in Israel, uh, and this includes both archaeological and the more ethnological uh, geared anthropology projects that I've had too. So I've done work in Israel, I've done work in Jordan, 
in um, done work in Ireland, uh, done work in uh, Peru. I was the team anthropologist on on L.A. Marzulli's first trip down there. Uh, I've done work in, in Mexico. I've done done our, uh, work all over the state of Texas and the Southwest. So a, pr- a pretty broad swath of things. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. So what's one of the most interesting things that you've uh, found in your travels on excavations? Well, I, I, it's kind of a toss up. Of course, the stuff that I worked on at, at uh, Banianos, Bananas, was very interesting. We were looking at the, the Roman phase of the site and excavating here at Agrippa II's old palace. So we would run into, um, you know, all kinds of pottery, usually not intact, but um, coins that were actually minted at Banias. We would find uh, uh, pieces of little glass lamps. Um, The section that I was working on had been converted into a bathhouse during the Byzantine period. So we pulled up these things called hypercosts, which basically constituted the floor uh, that they would run the steaming hot water underneath. On this side of the globe, uh, I think probably the most interesting thing that, that I found, and I say I found, my brother actually found it. Uh, one of the projects that I have here in Central Texas is on uh, 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 the Apache missions that the uh, Terreros family funded uh, back in the uh, mid-1700s. And... Um, yeah, there was a lot of clamor as to whether whether they were actually the Spanish were actually building out this far from the main site, which is in present day Menard, Texas. We were looking in Lampasas County, and uh, my brother looks down when we're surveying one day and says, "What's this?" And he picks up a Guerrero point, which is only made by missionized Indians in that part of Texas. So you know that that essentially was like the smoking gun that proves. That it was indeed part of the Apache mission system. Right. That that was a that was a big deal for me because I'd had a lot of scholars saying, "Ah, oh, you know, it's not there. It's not you know, you're just you're chasing stories about Spanish gold, and you know that that convinced a lot of them otherwise." Wow, that's awesome. But so no giant bones. <laughs> no giant bones as of yet. I've got I, I've got some irons in the fire uh, talking to people. Um, I mean, I would lo- I would love to be the one to pull out that articulated skeleton, but of the of the three axes that I researched this stuff on, you know, the historical the the tech stuff would be the first one. The second one is the mythological folklore oral tradition. Right. And then the, the, we've got an abundance of evidence in those two. The one that we have the scarcest evidence for is the material evidence. That's not to say that there's not any, but there are so many hoaxes out there. You know, I would say upwards of 80%, if not more, of the stuff you see online is is complete hoax. And, you know, fair, even ferreting through a lot of the newspaper clippings, you know, from like the late 1800s and 1900s, you really have to be careful and kind of scrutinizing about a lot of these things because they had yellow journalism and fake news back then too. Right. Um, but there, I, you know, in my own research, I've tried to narrow down 
finds that I thought had the best case for legitimacy, like the uh, the Morris Mound find uh, on the coast of Texas down by Victoria is a really good case. The uh, Castle Now Giant in France was cited not only in the popular press, but the scientific journals of the day. And so there, there, are, there are really clusters of them that, that do hold some promise. And of course, there's stuff out there that we haven't even found yet that hasn't even been you know, subjected to the rigors of, of archaeology. So I'm, I'm hopeful uh, that in the near future we can do that. Jen, what are the chances that um, in the near future you might be willing to take us out on a dig? Uh, chances are very high. I think I could teach you what you need to know in an afternoon. Awesome. Chris, are you in? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That's definitely... Um... One thing that is, as soon as uh, DJB is on his feet, I think we're gonna we're gonna have some some trips planned for sure. Well, I'm speaking absolutely. for him, of course, but I'm gonna do everything I can to convince him. Oh, absolutely! I've had I've, I've had several people asking me already. I'm like, let me get back on my feet, and I'm I'm there, man. Yeah, maybe we can uh, see if we can go bust down the doors of the Smithsonian and see what they've got in their basement. Yes. I'd, I'd like to take, go ahead, Tori. I'm sorry. Oh, oh no. I was just, I'm like brainstorming a trip, you know, that's like a Dr. Judd Burton, like Derek Olson kind of like archaeological dig slash like U.S. megalithic marble. Like how crazy would that be? Mm. Yeah, that'd be nice. Yeah. I'd love to have Derek on board. He's great. I love his stuff. Yeah. Oh, we'll definitely, we'll, we'll definitely get something in the works. Now, as for the Smithsonian, I, I don't know. Um, that, that's a <laughs> whole other, a whole other ball of wax. We need to get a man on the inside, Jed. We're going to send you there too. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't. I don't know if they if they'd even take. I could apply for a job there. I doubt they'd even take me. Sure, you're too well known. There, yeah. We need someone without any history in this space. So. <laughs> right. Exactly. I'll work in the gift shop or something. <laughs> I was going to say I might be able to qualify for like a janitorial position yeah. and maybe you know, get keys to the building. Yeah. You never know. You know, the Smithsonian is an interesting case. They're certainly culpable in a lot of, um, a lot of cases here. I have no doubt that that institution, like so many of our institutions in American society have been thoroughly illuminized, mm. but I'm never, never quite willing to completely vilify, um, institutions like NASA or, or the Smithsonian because there there's still a lot of good people I think honest and 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 people who have uh, you know legitimate research agendas uh, in those places you know that it, it occurs to me that historically the Illuminati particularly particularly from the 18th century forward doesn't really operate like they don't they don't take over entire institutions they have plants everywhere. <laughs> And they're pulling strings, um, you know. But again, that that doesn't, of course, take any of the culpability away from uh, those institutions. Just depending on what level they've been they've been sort of infiltrated. Uh, like I think a lot of the the old Bureau of Ethnology archaeologists and anthropologists uh, were probably, you know, probably largely unaware of how their careers and and skills were being weaponized you know, for this larger agenda, they were just going out and doing their jobs. Um, you know, but you can point, you can also point to, 
to other people like John Wesley Powell, who probably knew the inside scoop of what was going on, probably facilitated it uh, to one degree or another. Um, but it, it's a it's a jumbled jumbled mess. But there there's a, a certainly a degree of culpability um, that those plants in, in in institutions like the Smithsonian Institute are going to have to answer to. Answer you, said, for you said the okay. Bureau of Ethnology. Mm -hmm. What? So can you can you go into explain a little bit about what you're talking about there? Sure. The Bureau of Ethnology was a, an arm of the Smithsonian Department that was created in the late 1800s. I think in the I think 1869 was was the year that it was established. If I'm not mistaken, but its express purpose was to uh, basically preserve and recover uh, in terms of, of material culture and, and oral culture as much as they possibly could of the Native Americans that were, uh, many tribes were already gone by that point in time, some were in the process because in the late, late 1800s is the, of course, the last of the Indian Wars that were taking place. So some of them were being, <clears throat> their numbers were being greatly diminished. The reservation system comes into play and so I think that because so many of the stories of Native Americans uh, corroborate the existence of, of giants, the existence of these fallen entities, um, because so many of these oral traditions corroborate a biblical supernatural worldview, that was something that the powers that be couldn't have, um, couldn't have as common knowledge because it would just add to the veracity of, of the biblical narrative. Uh, and so ostensibly the Bureau of Ethnology was created for, for legitimate scholarly purposes. And there are tons of, of reports that come out, you know, a lot of, a lot of reports of giants and the recovery of the remains are published under the auspices of the bulletin of the Bureau of Ethnology. Um, so the, uh, this is probably the most weaponized arm of that generation, you know, spanning from the late 1800s into the early 20th century. Gotcha. I feel like that's how the enemy always works, though, right? It's like he doesn't just come right out with like outright lies. It's like he mixes in like lies into the truth. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, mm -hmm. like the giant bones, like, like there were hoaxes, you know. Of, big giant bone stories being mixed in there. And so it's like, probably some of them are real, but then people see the hoaxes and it's like, oh, they're all hoaxes, you know? Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Or, you know, like in the Bible, like Satan coming around and it's like, what he's saying is, you know, it's like he's quoting the Bible or he's saying things that like are true, but it's mixed in with something that's not true. You know what I mean? So it's like, mm -hmm. it makes it hard to yeah, pick clearly. out. It makes it hard to separate the truth from what's, from what's a lie, you know, and so it's like either you fall for it or people just like throw out the entire thing altogether, you know. So right, yeah, that's how you right. muddy the water, you know. If you want someone to to believe something is ridiculous, you you make it ridiculous by coming up with false evidence, false claims, mm -hmm. kind of muddy the waters. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, and that's that's the demonic mo is to is to either obfuscate or completely confuse the issue uh, you know turn what is good on its head turn the truth on its head and that's being accomplished today uh in large part through our educational system you know, postmodernism has essentially 
you know, corrupted most of the institutions in our, in our way of life. Um, so that, that under the auspices of postmodernism, truth is not relative. There's no objective truth. Anybody can have any old truth that they want. Well, that's patently absurd to begin with. And second of all, it's not been part of our, our educational tradition until, until the past 50 or 60 years. Uh, you know, we've had this, this marriage of classical education to a, a biblical worldview uh, that's dominated Western tradition and, and made it the world force that it's been. That it's, but the, that's slowly being eroded. Well, I should say that it had been slowly been eroding, but, but now we're seeing that, you know, that it's like a force multiplier today that postmodernism has done its work so completely. Uh, that we end up with the conditions that we have in our society. And of course, this, this bleeds into, you know, bringing out the truth, teasing out the truth in subjects that on the surface seem to be, you know, somewhat sensational, like giants or fallen entities. But that reveals a lot of the academic dishonesty that exists in scholarly circles. Because if there really was academic freedom, then these sorts of questions could be asked in that form. Uh, but it's it's science by committee these days. It's not. It's the ongoing conversation that it once was. Yeah. Right. And it's a fact of the church too, right? Because it's like we don't talk about this stuff in the church. Like I grew up in church my whole life and, you know, had never heard about most of this stuff until like last year. Very much so. I mean, even, you know, theological seminaries and universities that train, you know, so many of the pastors and um churches themselves uh have been so compromised by materialism and naturalism uh that we we end up with a prevailing narrative in churches you know about about the fallen angels being the sethite theory the sons of god were descendants of seth i was talking about that earlier today that makes absolutely no sense whatsoever uh based just based on the language alone but it's more proof that if you torture the data, it will admit to anything. And that's part of the problem uh, that you deal with, like in the Sunday school setting or the, the Bible study setting, or even, even in the sanctuary when you're getting a, a sermon, is that so many of these, these pastors and teachers are so ill-equipped to teach the things that we're talking about here that are, that are part of a biblical supernatural worldview um, because they're just not taught it. And because they're the ones writing all the Sunday school literature and the Bible studies and the books and this, that, and the other, and they end up finding their way into, into the church, you know, it ends up being, we end up paying the price on the discipleship because of it. And it doesn't help that the enemy's done such a good job of destroying biblical literacy either. You know, along with general liter literacy, that's really gone into the toilet. I mean, we've really got to get back to the book. Um, right. I think yeah. one of the aspects of that is capitalism in the American church. That if they were to, you know, talk about, you know, things like this from the pulpit or or in a you know a church Bible study, um, it would hurt the bottom line of the church from a financial standpoint, um, mm. which is really sad. Doctor Doctor Burton, um, we've got David Ozy um, on the line, and he's got a question for you about the Book of Enoch. So I'm going to okay. let David uh, jump in and ask his question. Okay. 
Hey, how you doing, Dr. Jed? I'm good. How are you? Pretty good. Uh, I've been listening to you a lot on Larry Creatures and all and, and praying for your recovery. So hopefully you're Thank you. up and at it soon. I'm on the mend. Thank you. <laughs> good deal. Well, yeah, my question actually kind of ties into some of what you guys were talking about um, regarding the Book of Enoch. Um, mm -hmm. And I know that a lot of what's talked about in this realm of the Watchers and Fallen Angels and things like that, uh, the the account in Genesis 6 is pretty vague. And a lot of what I hear is drawn from the Book of Enoch. So, And I know it's also been found, fra fragments of it were found with like the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, mm -hmm. And it even talks about like the Son of Man in the Book mm -hmm. of Enoch, which was a term that Jesus used to refer to himself as. Mm -hmm. So my question is, uh, how reliable of a source of truth do you think that the Book of Enoch is? Why do you think, if you think that, why do you think that? And also, if it is a source of truth, then why is it so like widely rejected or like held at arm's length among Christians mm -hmm. and even referred to as like non-inspired or non-canonical? Mm -hmm. Well, that's a great question. Um... I think that I, now I don't treat the book of Enoch on the same level as I do canon scripture, uh, canon scripture. But here's the thing. <clears throat> there are certain apocryphal works, including the book of Enoch, that are theologically congruent uh, with the, the canon biblical narrative. You know, you have, you know, almost the entire book of Jude in the New Testament is taken from the book of Enoch. And Peter makes reference to uh, the book of Enoch and his letters as well. And, um, you know, almost by proxy, you know, Jesus' visit to Caesarea Philippi is a nod to a familiarity amongst, not, not just with him, but his disciples, uh, their familiarity. So I think that, that you get these, these apocryphal works, and there are certainly apocryphal works that are, that are cited in the Old Testament as well. But if we believe that the, the canon scripture, if we believe that that's God inspired and that God inspired those authors to write those books, then we also have to believe that when the apocryphal work is cited, that God also inspired them to refer to those books. You see what I'm saying? That, yeah, we have, we have, the canon was pretty much already set by the time even the discussion about it started. So you had the Septuagint, you know, the Old Testament in place, and Irenaeus's letters just basically articulated the, the books of the New Testament, whose authors were known, uh, and whose authority was not in question. And so there wasn't a whole lot of legwork to do there in terms of, of including or excluding scripture but um i think that enoch is a valuable source because again a it's cited by biblical writers and b it gives it gives us an expanded theologically congruent view of the world of genesis in particular and so i think that its cultural merits speak you know really for itself uh in that regard and uh you noted the the dead sea scroll find in 1947, which was, you know, we only had Ethiopic copies of it up to that point. Um, you know, that, that's a big, uh, to me, that's a huge find because of the, the custodianship of the Essenes. The Essenes were the ones that, that articulated this stuff 
that had undoubtedly been an oral tradition for centuries, if not millennia, uh, by that point in time. Uh, so while I think that, that certain apocryphal works are, they're apocryphal for a reason, they're not equal with inspired canon scripture, but they're still valuable and they still have theological, cultural, and historical merit. Got it. That makes plenty of sense. Um, and obviously there's other historical books that are not necessarily like included within the scriptures themselves. Sure. Um, and I was, I just always kind of wondered about that in the sense, you know, if it is a reliable source, you know, it, it seems mm -hmm. very, very like taboo as opposed to some of these other books that were like yes. historical yeah. and recount some of the same events that scripture does. Yeah, well, a lot of that begins in the, the fifth century with, with figures like uh, Julius Africanus and uh, St. Augustine. You know, both of these guys are encouraging this non-supernatural worldview. At least, it's really strange because they're comfortable with most of everything else is supernatural in the canon scripture, but they seem to have a problem with this this whole sons of God issue. Um, neither one of these guys, to my knowledge, were very good Hebrew scholars. I don't even know if they had access to those texts, but they certainly had access to the the uh, the recent uh, uh, Latin and uh, the older Greek uh, renderings of these works. Uh, but even a reading, even a reading of the Septuagint sort of should have cleared up, you know, a good bit of that for now. But uh, it's just a, a matter of this narrative you know, that the enemy threw into the mix, I think that really, really sort of uh, uh, peripheralized and marginalized works like Enoch and, and Jasher and Jubilees, which, as I pointed out, are, are theologically congruent with the canon scripture. Now, clearly, there's a reason that some things didn't make it in. Uh, the Gnostic Gospels are, are largely heretical in, in nature, and they don't, they're, they come along much, much later you know, in, in, in terms of where they fit into the history of the early church. So we're talking second and third century BC. So again, that was kind of a no-brainer, you know, for, for not including those. But in terms of, of Jewish apocrypha, um, there's there's very, really some valuable stuff there. That may be longer of a, an answer than you, that you wanted, but uh, there it is. No, very, very. I appreciate the opportunity to ask the question. So thank you. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. My pleasure. Tori, you want to you want to jump in there? I know you got some questions that you prepared for Dr. Jed. Oh, sure. I have all kinds of questions for Dr. Jed. Um, uh oh. Well, Jed, so we kind of wanted to dive in a bit to like your origin story. You know, like we've heard we've heard you talk about a lot of topics, but we kind of wanted to just get into like your faith journey. How did you decide to study what you studied? How old were you when you started believing in Bigfoot? You know, <laughs> I knew it was going to come up. Yeah, well, uh, you know, I'm back in the place where this journey started. You know, in Liverpool, and um, you know, I, I I grew up with a pretty good sense of the the drama of the narrative of the Bible, because you know, all my family, my mom, my dad, uh, my maternal grandmother and my great aunt and uncle they were all huge influences on me i spent a lot of time with my grandmother and my great aunt and uncle and my great aunt was a, a tremendous student of prophecy and so a lot of these a lot of these topics 
I was considering at a pretty early age, really even before I came to Christ, when I was 10, I wondered, because I'm reading a lot of mythology, you know, at this time too, I'm reading directly out of my grandmother's library. And, you know, it was her copy of the Iliad and the Odyssey that got me interested in the classics to begin with. And so I'm reading all this stuff. I'm trying to think, you know, there are these passages like Genesis 6 that sound really reminiscent about of, of what I'm reading in Greek mythology. And I'm, I'm just wondering what, looking at this through the biblical lens, what it's going to allow. And so I just fostered that interest uh, in the biblical narrative and mythology, uh, as as did my family. And as I, I grew older, I was, it was really at about that time that I met, that I met the uh, aforementioned uh, Dr. George Knott, who was such a huge influence on me and, and eventually sent me to work at, at Panaeus. Um, so I, I had lots of support and encouragement to sort of study these things and, and always had questions from my Sunday school teachers and Bible study teachers and youth leaders and my pastor. And so they, to their credit, they indulged, you know, the questions that I had. And I got a pretty solid foundation in biblical literacy because we were, we did Bible drills and played Bible baseball. And so you almost couldn't get away from, from learning scripture. You know, I always tell people I learned, I learned more scripture growing up than I ever did when I was in college. I mean, it, it was just, it was already there. It was in place. Are we talking um, Bible drills? Like, where you hold it like this, and then they give you a reference, and it's like, who can get there fastest? Yeah, exa- exactly. Exactly. That, that kind too. of stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And they'd give us, they'd give us little stickers or gold stars, you know, on a little chart as you made your way through. But yeah, we played, we did all kinds of things like that. Yeah, absolutely. So I had a pretty firm grounding in scripture even before I began my academic. Uh, journey and that of course that's all woven into my journey I guess what you might call my blurry journey because I had the curriculum that this is how much of a nerd I was in college so I had the curriculum that I was studying for my classes right and I have what I call my other studies where I'm reading Bullfinch's mythology and Fraser's golden bow and uh, uh, Charles Squire's work Edith Hamilton uh, I'm reading all these books on cults and and religions and stuff like that, and you know, I would save the money that I would I would make and buy things like the Dictionary of World Religions. It was completely out of my price range at the time, but I bought it anyway. So I had this, uh, you know, I was constantly reading, devouring. I remember there were periods and through there where I didn't watch any TV at all. I mean, it was just strictly radio, basically, where I got my news from, and I I had this very rigorous regimen that i put myself through under god's guidance can we get a copy of that regimen because i feel like we <laughs> would do well do to, to follow your footsteps do i do i need to do i need to put that curriculum in uh in, in the iba uh school absolutely patent that yeah well 12 steps it was, to uh, jedhood <laughs> let's see to be a Jedi. I never, I never, I, how to become a Jedi. That's right. The Jedi Academy. Maybe that's what I should rename my school. That would be amazing. Um, but uh, really the interesting thing, one of the interesting things about this journey was when I began to find 
my fr- that my friends, my good friends, were also interested in the supernatural. And we would meet in the school library, you know, on our off period to study this stuff. And um, I'm talking like eighth grade. Like what eighth, what eighth graders were reading about this stuff, but but us, but we did. And, uh, you know, we, we bonded over that uh, over the years. And I eventually became, when I got into college, I became involved in, in deliverance ministry and saw really where the rubber meets the road in terms of all this stuff. And so it, it, as I'm doing my academic thing, it's also becoming very real to me. Uh, what's at stake? What, what the enemy is actually throwing at people? Um, and how exactly we become better prepared and more informed for those kinds of confrontations. But yeah, it's, it, it's a, it was a long token-esque journey in a lot of ways for me, but coming, coming to a realization about, about supernatural reality while also, also being very, Cautious, not in a materialistic or naturalist perspective, but more in attesting the spirits, uh, you know, that John admonishes in his letters in uh, approach to, you know, under, understanding whether this is, this is legitimately a supernatural experience from the Lord or is it something that the enemy is throwing in my direction? And so lots of books, lots of interacting with people. Very, very good mentors. I've talked a lot about George Knight, but there were other people at Harden Simmons, like uh, Dr. Don Taylor, who was my history advisor, and again indulged my my interests so that I, I was basically studying the history of religions under his tutelage, and uh, learned the rudiments of, of archaeology under George Knight and and others. Particularly when I really hit the field, I owe a lot to uh, Dr. John Laughlin. We used to teach at Averett College as well. But I knew that my journey wasn't going to stop, you know, with just a bachelor's degree. I knew, I knew that there was more specialization and broad specialization that I was going to need cross-cultural comparative expertise, which is why I opted to do a, an anthropology master's degree rather than simply going back, retreading tires, basically, that I had done on my history degree. I could have gone the classics route. But I'd already had, I'd already had three years of Greek by that point in time, and I felt like I'd be covering ground that I really need to go back over. And so anthropology gave me the the cultural tools, the linguistic tools, and the uh, the abilities and and expertise to conduct archaeological investigations. So. I have this in my notes. Is it true that you are the president of the anthropology club? <laughs> Yes, it's true. Uh, not, although not anymore, but the story behind that is, um, my parents are always my biggest fan. My mom was almost a PR agent for me. Uh, but I came, I, I, the second year of grad school, I was elected the president of the anthropology society of tech, Texas Tech. And my mom wrote an, a, on a post-it note from my dad, uh, that I had I'd been elected president of the Anthropology Society. And so I, I kept coming home 
uh, I would come home on the, uh, about every other weekend because my the group that I was studying was actually in Abilene, so it just worked out that I could I could come back pretty regularly. I kept noticing that this this post-it note was on the uh, refrigerator. So months go by, years go by, and it became this running joke that I I would find it on there, and I would I would yell to Dad, "Hey, Dad, did you hear that I was elected president of the Anthropology <laughs> Society?" That by that point I was already you know. <laughs> working on my PhD and it just became this running joke and it was it was up on the refrigerator almost until uh, mom passed away a couple of years ago wow uh but uh that thing's that hung on there for, for darn near 16 years or so hmm. we need to put that on our refrigerators <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah that'd be great I'm, I don't know that I have a picture of the actual post and note but I'll never forget the story yeah, I was gonna say if you had a, if you had a picture of it, we we would make a T-shirt out of that. Make a magnet and yeah, sell right. it on the okay. Jedi Academy merch. Yeah, <laughs> that's We're a great already, idea. Already looking, already looking to market and merchandise. Yes, <laughs> that is awesome. Hey, I want to jump in and ask. This is gonna seem like a random question based on what we've been talking about, but I did tell you we're gonna kind of okay. just pepper you with different questions. So I went back sure. and listened to. I think it was the first episode you were on of Blurry Creatures, episode 11. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. I just wrote down some questions that uh, popped into my head as, as you were talking. And sure. I want to know, if, what is witchcraft? I mean, mm-hmm. not, just, not, not just the textbook definition, but what I'm wondering is like, why and how are these things possible? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a good question. Witchcraft, interestingly enough, the biblical definition lines up pretty well with the, the anthropological definition, which is an individual who operates counter or anathema to the cultural norm on a supernatural level. So in, in most societies, these are individuals who are peripheralized uh, because they stand so staunchly against what the cultural norm is. And of course, the the practices of witches are as diverse as the kinds that you're going to find from culture to culture, but they do share these similarities. They share this connection with the darker elements of the spiritual world, uh, often directly communing with demons and fallen spirits. But, and I've written about this in an interview with the giant. I've talked about it too, is that you can trace this back to the pre-flood world where you've got this direct tutelage uh, between the watchers and that generation of humans that birthed uh, the first generation of Nephilim. There's this exchange for genetic access. There's an exchange of this knowledge that's a combination of occult practice and practical knowledge. And in a lot of ways, that's that's the two-part element of the practice of witchcraft is it's an it's accessing the natural world to combine it with doing nefarious things within a supernatural context so it's the manipulation and aberration of nature for supernatural purposes that's why it's not uncommon to find use of of all kinds of herbal concoctions and use of hallucinogenic herbs for ointments all these things you'll find in accounts of witchcraft and even werewolves, vampires, and other kinds of creatures. 
all of these things can be traced back to the pre-flood world. And I'm certainly not the first person to articulate that. The first time that I ever encountered it was in Montague Summers, the vampire, his kith and kin, where Summers actually ties the origins as a vampire to what we would call the Genesis 6 or Mount Hermon event. So that that's the very essence of, of witchcraft. That's the perennial nature, the, the universal nature of it. So... When you talk about the supernatural, we're kind of we're talking about the like what Heiser I think is I don't know if he's coined the term, but the unseen realm. Yes. Are we talking about another dimension? What do you what do you think we're talking about there? Well, we're certainly talking about about entities from another dimension interacting with us in this dimension. You know, whatever ability or. or you know, call whatever you want to technology, whatever they're using, they're still able, uh, some of these fallen entities are still able to access this dimension. And of course, the, the demons themselves are here. You know, people ask, where did the Nephilim go? Well, they've really never left. They're destroyed in the flood and then they're, they become unclean spirits. They become these demonic spirits, which consequently, that's one of the most common phrasings for, uh, demons in the New Testament is unclean spirit. So this sort of ties us back to the question that David asked about, you know, basically what is the theological historical value of these apocryphal texts? Because they expand upon the nature of these kinds of entities. So yeah, I do think we're talking about multidimensionality in some cases. In other cases, these entities actually reside here. Okay. Hmm. And and with that, do you think that in this dimension that we reside, are there other planets that are populated with with civilizations in your estimation? I think that that's possible, <clears throat> although we don't we we can't really know that for sure. You know, you would think just law of of averages statistics that there would be at least a chance. You know, because we have located some planets that are in a sort of Goldilocks zone, I think is what astronomers call it. Right. But I, I think in in most cases, what you're dealing with, like in terms of, of UFOs and, and, you know, alien visitations and things like that, I think it's these fallen entities that are masquerading as these things, because, the, again, that's part, that's their modus operandi. Plus, the the distances that these things would have to traverse to get here without succumbing to the laws of physics almost make it impossible that they're interplanetary or intergalactic civilizations that are contacting us. The, the better, the more logical option is that they're interdimensional and that they've mastered the technique somehow to move between dimensions. Now, when we start talking about that, I, I think we're almost exclusively talking about uh, these fallen entities, not not extraterrestrial biological. I don't think we're talking about biological entities in the, in the orthodox sense at that point of time. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Are you familiar with Timothy Alberino's philosophies and his book at all, The Birthright? Uh, somewhat, just from the snippets that I've, I've listened to. Okay. I'd love to get you guys in a room together. Hey, I would love. I would love to. I, I, I like. Uh, I like. I like Tim's work. Uh, I've. I've reached out to him a couple of times when he's such a busy guy. Aren't, yeah. aren't we all? Right, right. Well, you know, not all of us, but some busier than <laughs> others. Um, Maybe someday. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, I, I want to ask you, we got about 10 minutes left. I'd like to ask you one last question and we would love to have you on again um, at some point in the near future. Um, that would be amazing. But um, this is a question I, I stole from a guy named, I believe his name is Sam Delgado from the, the Weird Christian Podcast. I'm not sure if you've mm -hmm. been on the show. Mm -mm. But at one point he would ask his guests, if you had, if you were able to be a witness of any three events in either the Old Testament or New Testament, what three events would you like to witness? Oh, wow. Well, from a safe distance, I'd have to say the Mount Hermon event would be one. The second one would would be, I think, in the Old Testament, I think would be the, uh, if I could just be like a reporter in the field. Yeah. You know, when the Hebrews go from, from Egypt back into Canaan. I think that that would be an interesting experience. And and the third, I would definitely have to say that I would I would like to have been there to see the and, and interact with to see Jesus's visit to Caesarea Philippi, Pinaeus. So your third answer raises a question that I had on the gates of hell. Mm -hmm. Are we talking about a portal that takes you? inside the physical earth or to another dimension that's a good question it doesn't necessarily have to be mutually exclusive because we're talking about different dimensions we're talking about different they, they could occupy the same space so it could be within the bowels of the earth but it could also be extra dimensional at the same time but uh yeah that's that's an interesting question that i i'm Still trying to kind of work out in my own mind, I think, but I, I don't see why those two would have to be mutually exclusive. Um, we've heard stories about people drilling into the earth and then, you know, in, them encountering reptilian entities and sectolins. Mm -hmm. So my question is, and, you know, we're, we're speculating wildly, which I love to do, is if we were to dig in the right spot, would we find you know, those those original watchers that are kind of chained in gloomy darkness, you know, inside of the earth, Tartarus, I think, right? I don't know. I don't I, I don't think so. I, I think that those those prisons are partitioned off for a reason. I don't think that you would you would make direct contact with them. But again, I couldn't I can't say that for, for certain. Certainly people have, have claimed to have had at least supernatural access to some of those entities. To which I liken the fact that yeah they're they're sort of out of out of play in the conventional sense but they they, they may be running their operations from prison like a mafia an imprisoned mafia don might do with his operation but in terms of actually encountering them through digging again I think if you've got the extra dimensional interdimensional factor there it's really hard to say. Mm -hmm. I'm the more I I talk have these conversations like even around like Bigfoot, is it a, a natural phenomenon, a f supernatural one? I'm, the more I'm starting mm -hmm. to think, a, a lot more things are, it's probably both. Yeah, yeah. It could be a, f a physical place inside the Earth somewhere and also mm -hmm. an extra-dimensional space. Um, right. It's kind of overlaying that same spot. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm starting to lean more in that yeah. direction. I don't know. Clearly there's a yeah. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, like, just you saying that, I mean, I don't know, this sounds 
dumb, you know, but I'm like, we're, we're both, you know, mm. I'm like we're flesh and blood and we're also spirit, yeah. you know, so. Good point. Well, and you know, if we're uh, clearly the watchers have, and angels in general have the ability to manipulate matter in this dimension, because any account that we have of an angel appearing, people think that they're, they're other people. Right. You know, then on, upon an initial encounter, that's almost that's pretty much universal throughout scripture. Uh, so clearly they were able to to use matter, you know, in whatever form suited them at the time. Um, now, those that were still loyal to Yahweh, obviously, were using it for him. But those that, that weren't clearly were using it for other reasons. There's, you know. The, the Genesis six episode and all of the commentary that we get from Enoch. Uh, and and uh, other books like Jubilees and Jasher, you know, it's clear that there's manipulation of matter going on there at the certainly at the genetic level that ends up in the, the phenotypic level. You know, in other words, how these things actually appeared, what they looked like, something at play there uh, in their ability to, to manipulate matter. Is is what you're talking about with? these entities ability to, to manipulate matter something akin to white magic and black magic or dark magic the same ability yes, but on how it's yes seen. but yes but taking taking to taken to its masterful extreme in, in other words you know these abilities originate you know with this class of, of entity you know and it's not that there aren't of course thaumaturgists, high ritual magicians who can utilize some of that. Um, but that's why I say that it's taken, you know, at the extreme end of mastery that these entities are able to use it basically however they want. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. But yeah. it's the same principles. It's the same, you know, it's the same again, you can use the word technology, you could use the word magic. We're still dealing with the same thing, whatever application you tie into it. I mean, anthropologists have been writing about that you know, what, what a strange line we draw between those two things for decades. Uh, so, yeah, I think, I think you're definitely looking at uh, an ability that finds its origins in these fallen entities and is taught by degree and initiation to humanity. And is the purpose, is the purpose for them, I mean, so obviously God gave them the sons of God, he gave them these powers, those abilities mm -hmm. for a reason. And what we're just seeing, some are using it for its original intended purpose and others are using those abilities that are inherent in their being for their own nefarious purposes. Yes. Yes. Gotcha. Yeah, that's wild. Summers is the one who wrote Onward Christian Soldiers, right? No, he uh, that's Sabine Baring Gold. He, he wrote the book on werewolves, yeah. Okay. But he, he also wrote him Onward Christian Soldiers, okay? Yeah, Chris and I we were talking about that earlier, and I was like, Jed mentioned someone who wrote that hymn we've been singing for hundreds of years and also wrote about okay. werewolves, so yeah. And Baring Gold is, is an interesting figure who's a, a minister in Britain and uh. He himself had had his own encounter with a werewolf. So he, you know, he was probably convinced even before that, that these demonic manifestations were real. But he was so compelled to write this, this 
to my mind, is still the most exhaustive exhaustive study on the subject of werewolves. And uh, you know, you should you should see the faces people make when you tell them that uh, hey, this guy that wrote Armored Christian Soldiers, he wrote the authoritative book on werewolves too. <laughs> Hey, this guy knew knew this stuff was real. Hey, is that a part of? Do you have a class um on werewolves specifically, and is that book a, a required reading, or is it a part of another course? I do have a class. Uh, I have a, pro, a, a program of twelve classes called Preternatural Morphology, which focuses in on the biblical perspective on these demonic manifestations within a folkloric context. And there there is a class devoted to werewolves. Yes, amazing. And the text for that. The text for that is Sabine Berengold's book. Montague Summers also wrote, uh, he wrote two books on vampires, I think two or three on witchcraft, and he also wrote a book on um, werewolves called The, the Werewolf in Lore and Legend, which is, which is also a very good book. Awesome. Jed, mm-hmm. I also have You're like welcome. probably a whole episode's worth of questions for you, just, well, about a lot of things. But um, recently we experienced the passing of a monarch who you said at some point had some familial ties to Vlad the Impaler. So I'd kind of like to explore that with you sometime when we have a lot of time. Yeah, Yeah. that'd be a great full episode, I think. Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. it was, I mean, you know, those ties are very clear. That's not something I'm making up. You know, that's been worked out genealogically. I've seen the work that's done on it. I I actually know a fair amount about, about the Dracula family because the, the first book that I ever read that really illustrated to me how history was done was a book called Dracula, Prince of Many Faces by two historians named Radu Florescu and Raymond McNally. They've written a number of books on the historical Dracula. Very good, very worthwhile. It was the first book that I'd ever paid attention to the footnotes in. And I thought, okay, this is how you do history. You learn the languages, you interact with the documents, uh, you make a, a reasoned uh, analysis and conclusion. And so interestingly enough, that my interest in that subject set me down the path of, of well, I suppose what you would call the historiographic part, yeah, writing and doing of history. Uh, but yes, that, that will make an, inter- an interesting conversation. Awesome. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll definitely uh, we'll do that one soon if you're willing to to come back and have that discussion we would greatly appreciate it certainly awesome awesome all right well um that's i think we're we're pretty pretty full up on time so uh dr judd we really appreciate you coming on and uh, we look forward to hearing from you more again in the future always an honor dr judd my pleasure it was my honor thank you thank you all righty all right we will uh we'll talk to you guys again soon bye-bye godspeed when you are in the future with the past in your heart, no matter how much you want, but the past will never let you go anyway. See you in the past. <laughs>